0: We are presently in a series looking at Advent, and it is Advent with a difference because we're not primarily looking at the birth of Jesus, but we're looking at the way people encountered Jesus and then had their lives completely changed as a result. And today we see an encounter, not for the first time for these people, but with the disciples and then indeed Thomas, for the first time after Jesus rose again. So we're going to read together from verse 19 through to the end of verse 29. This is the word of the Lord. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Lord, this moment in your word, this moment that is reporting a real moment in history, was incredible. Lord, I pray that you would bring it alive to our eyes and to our hearts today. That we would be stirred, as Patrick has already prayed, stirred and encouraged in our faith. As we see all that you're doing in and through this text, would it all be for your glory, Lord. Amen. You know, Many years ago, when I first came into pastoral ministry, I used to be a youth pastor. I used to work with young adults and youth, and I loved it. I loved working with young people. It was one of the biggest thrills of my life to see young people taking Jesus Christ as their Lord and Saviour, and then having their whole lives turned around as a result. I loved the vast majority of it. Apart from one weekend a year, it was not my preference. Because one weekend a year, we went on the annual adventure weekend away. And I'm not a very adventure type guy. So you're there with about 60 teenagers. They're super pumped. And I didn't really know what I was getting myself in for, even though I actually booked the weekend on an annual basis. But I remember the very first year we arrive, and I'm doing some preaching in the mornings and the nights. But in the afternoons, we're going to do all these different activities. And on one given afternoon, the adventure activity of question was the high ropes course. Even the name filled me with dread because I am scared of heights. So you can imagine, as the youth pastor, all the kids start to realize that I'm not too keen of going up these high trees and then these ropes and stuff. So, what do they do? They do what teenagers do David, David, David. They say, Yes, okay, I'm going up, I'm going. So, up I would go on these high ropes just because fear of man, fear of teenagers more than else. And so, I'd be doing all these things. I was terrified, the vast majority of the time. And then right at the end of this high ropes course, just when I thought we were done, was something called the leap of faith. This thing filled me with dread as soon as I saw it. Because what I saw immediately, as many of you will have seen before, is you have a small runway and then the runway stops and there's a trapeze about here. That you've got to try and grab onto. And we're about 40 feet in the air, which is a nightmare. I hate heights. Even when we're putting the Christmas lights up at Christmas, I send my son up. I don't go up there. Anything can happen up there. Up he goes. Well, I arrived at this leap of faith, and these young kids, 12 years old, are running up and they're just going for it. They're leaping and trying to grab this thing. Now and again, one of them would actually make it, and you'd think, this is awesome. Most of them would just fall to the ground and be held by the instructor. And that was me. So I arrive, it's my turn, I'm thinking there's no way I'm doing this thing. The chant goes up, David, David, it's clear I'm going to be doing this leap of faith. So I run with all my might and I close my eyes as I hit the edge and I think I get to about there. (laughs) And it's at that point that I start falling to the ground at quite a pace and the guy grabs my harness and, and, and holds me up so that I'm safe, but I'm screaming. I'm nearly crying at this point, trying to hide the tears. There must have been something in my eye, kids. I don't know what's going on. It was just an intense moment. And as the instructor lowered me down, I was the last one, obviously. He gathered me and all the kids together and he said, hey, listen, this activity called the leap of faith isn't about necessarily getting to the trapeze and holding on. It's about having a go. It's about faith, it's about trust, it's about belief, and it's about faith and trust and belief that as you have a go, we will always hold you. I said, so, well done, because you all had a go. That moment was a lesson in faith and trust and belief. The whole activity had been about trusting that someone would hold you should you fall. And in so many ways, that is what the Gospel of John is all about as well. See, there's not many books in the Bible that actually explain to you why they have been written. But John does. In the very next two verses, after the verses that we read this morning, he said, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. John has placarded before our eyes in the Gospel of John, example after example after example of Jesus. Why? So that we may believe. So that we may put our faith in him as our Lord and Saviour. And in doing so, we may have life in his name. That's why he's written the entirety of the book. And just prior to making it explicitly clear that that's why he's written the Gospel, He gives us this story here about the disciples and about Thomas. And he gives us it to show us a simple picture of faith. See, this is more than just a story. It's a picture. It's a simple picture of faith. It's the moment where Thomas, in effect, takes the leap of faith, And John wants to hold that up to us and go, Look, behold, this is what true saving faith looks like. It's not just believing in your mind. No, it's something more than that. Right here in this text, we have a simple picture of faith which teaches us what true saving faith actually looks like. In fact, it actually even teaches us what it even takes for someone to believe. And such it is packed with wonderful information that I think will massively help us, whether we know Jesus or whether we don't, to be truly encouraged in our faith. The way we're going to proceed then this morning is by looking at the three sets of characters that are described in these verses. And I trust and pray it does come alive in our minds as we do. Here's the first point then, the disciples. The first set of characters are none other than the disciples that are often playing the stage of buffoon in the, in the Gospels, and here they, well, they actually do quite well. Let's look at verse 19 together. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Imagine the scene. The scene is set. The disciples have been walking with Jesus for the last three years of their life. He is everything to them. He's their teacher He's their friend. They want to be with him. They have seen him do miracles. They've shared numerous meals with him. They've laughed with him. They've been taught with him. And yet, incredibly, three days ago, he was arrested on the edge of the Garden of Gethsemane. And now he is dead. And three days on, the disciples are huddled together in a locked room, hiding. Hiding. They are grieving after the Lord. He's their friend. How how could this happen? They're in despair, wondering what on earth happens now. They're in fear of the Jews. They're concerned. They grabbed him and they crucified him. They know that we were with him. They might do the same with us. They are fearful. They are despairing. They are afraid. They are in disarray. And then incredibly, Jesus appears. There's there verse 19, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. What a moment this must have been for them. Jesus miraculously gets in. It's not clear how. Does he walk through the door? Does he miraculously open the door? No one really knows. But what is clear is that door is locked and he is now in. And then he says to them, peace be with you. Those words are absolutely packed with information. Shalom, the word peace, was a common way of greeting people. And yet in this moment, I believe the words peace be with you came with a whole lot more force. As Michelle, I thought, brought out wonderfully in the time of prophecy this morning. These moments when he says peace, they are packed with information. I mean, they are indicative of Jesus' peace with them for a start. Imagine the scene. You are the disciples. The last time you saw Jesus, you were running away from him. Your friend, the one that you all said as a group, we will never leave you, we will never forsake you, we'll be with you whatever happens. Last thing Jesus sees of you is the bottom of your feet as you run away. Peter puts up a bit of a fight. Chops the guy's ear off. Oops. Jesus says, stop it. Sticks his ear back on. It's a really awkward moment. And then having stuck the ear back on, they all run away. Peter, James and John. One job, the Garden of Gethsemane. Stay awake. Pray. Keep alert. Three times. Fell asleep. What a precious moment. And it must have been when Jesus comes into that room. They must have been thrilled, but also wondering, whoa, what's going to happen? Hey, guys. Peace be with you. It's okay. I always told you that the shepherd would be struck and the sheep would scatter. I knew this was going to happen. It's okay. Shalom. Peace be with you. It's indicative of the Savior's peace with them in this moment. But it's also indicative of God the Father's peace with them as well. Just three days earlier, Jesus Christ declared on the cross, It is finished. There was now a way to be at peace with God. There was a way to know God as your Lord and Father. There was a way to know God and be reconciled to Him and forgiven of your sin and justified. Jesus had achieved it all. So shalom. Peace be with you. It's so wonderfully packed with information. It is a moment where once again we get to behold the amazing kindness and grace of God to us. And to prove that this was really him for these disciples, he then shows them his hands and his side. Read verse 20. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. He wanted to prove then to them, understanding their shock that he is actually alive, that this is him. He shows them the scars on his hand. He shows them the scar on his side. And as they see it and they hear his words, they are wonderfully glad because they realise this is him. We missed you. These are the longest three days of our lives. We saw you were dead, but now we see you're alive. Oh, they are glad. There would have been dancing. There would have been partying. This is him and he is alive. See, we don't just say he is risen. He is risen indeed on one day a year. You know, we can say it any time we want. Because in this moment, they realized he has risen. He is back. And then wonderfully and graciously And Jesus has some more words for them. Look with me at verse 21. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Withheld. In an absolutely life and world-changing moment for these disciples, he in this moment commissions and inaugurates them to be his body and his church. This is a staggering moment in history. He looks these disciples in their eyes and to start off with, he commissions them, helping them see, as the Father has sent me, I now send you. You are now going to be my hands and feet on this earth. It's you. They're going to brandish the gospel and take it from Jerusalem, Judea, to Samaria, to the ends of the earth. He commissions them as his body. And then, incredibly, he inaugurates them as his church. See, when he breathes on them, unless you understand what's going on there, it just seems a bit weird. Maybe even more so in COVID times, you are like breathing? We don't breathe on people. But to Jesus, this was incredibly symbolic. In Genesis chapter 2, remember when he creates Adam? Adam's just a body. And then he breathes in it, puts life in his bones. Well, that's exactly what Jesus is doing here with the local church. He's breathing life into this body. That's how they're going to go forth. That's how they're going to stand together. That's how they're going to delight in the gospel and proclaim the glorious gospel. It's through his very breath. Wouldn't you have loved to have been there for this moment? Just an hour earlier, they are huddled together in fear and despair and grief. But now they are glad. Now they are filled with faith. And incredibly, they've been commissioned and inaugurated as his body and his church. What a change of events this was. Wouldn't you have loved to have seen the look in their eyes as Jesus stands before them and breathes on them and enjoys their gladness around them? Well, one man who would have without doubt said, Yes, I would have loved to have been there, was Thomas. Yet Thomas was not there. And he's our next character, Brother Thomas. Look with me at verse 24. Now, Thomas, one of the 12, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. That's really unfortunate. <laughs> for some reason, and somewhat unfortunately, Thomas was not with them. John doesn't tell us why he wasn't with them. He doesn't tell him right where he had gone. Instead, he doesn't um, elaborate on that information in, in any shape or form. But for Thomas, this was bad news. I mean, imagine the scene. You're also upset, you're also fearful, but you weren't there for the big moment. And then your friends say, hey, he's back. Yeah, righto. A bit inappropriate, guys. We're just grieving here. Give me a break. For Thomas, when he heard that Jesus was back and all the disciples were telling him, he found that just overwhelming or just impossible to believe. It's not that he didn't want to believe. This was just a lot to take in in this moment. And so he tells him, hey, listen, no way. Just stop it. Unless I see his hands and I can put my hand in his side, there's no way I'm believing. It's just too much, guys. I'm not doing it. You know That response from Thomas was somewhat unfortunate because for the rest of eternity, he's going to be known as doubting Thomas. That's really unfortunate. I mean, when you get to heaven and you meet a guy called Thomas and then you hear that he was a disciple, what are you going to think? You're going to be... This is him, doubting Thomas. He's probably going to have the name Doubter in heaven. I mean, for all eternity, this dude will be doubting Thomas. But Sovereign Grace, I want to prepare you for that day when you meet Thomas, and I want to encourage you, this story is here not because he's doubting Thomas. This story is here to show us that actually he's believing Thomas. The punchline is not his doubt. The punchline is his faith. And Jesus, well, he returns for Thomas. He understands Thomas's frame. He understands Thomas's reluctance. He understands Thomas's doubt. And so, this is what happens next, verse 26. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them. And said, "Peace be with you." Then he said to Thomas, "Put your finger here, and see my hands. And put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe." My friends, behold the grace and compassion and kindness of the Lord. God the Son knew the doubts of Thomas. He knew his weaknesses. He knew his frame. He he knew his concerns. So eight days later, he comes in again. Once again, the door is locked. He appears. Good news, Thomas is in town. Hey, Thomas, peace be with you. Thomas, you weren't here last time. Since then, I've been aware that you've been doubting a whole lot too. Peace be with you, Thomas. It's okay. Hey, Thomas, give me your hand. Touch this. Hey, Thomas, t- touch my side. He knows what Thomas is thinking. He knows who Thomas is. He knows what's going on in his heart. So he, he wants to accommodate for all those different things. What a gracious and kind saviour he is, don't you think? He's not irritated. Thomas, I always told you I'd return. Thomas, your friends told you. I mean, I don't know where you were. I don't know if you are in the bathroom or something when I arrived. I don't know what was going on. He's not irritated at all. Thomas, I've come back for you. Peace be with you, Thomas. Here, touch. I want you to know that this is me. And then comes the absolute crescendo that John has been seeking to take us to all the time, which is Thomas's incredible response, verse 28. Thomas answered him, "My Lord and my God." In response to seeing Jesus, Thomas comes out with the clearest declaration of faith and belief in Jesus Christ recorded anywhere in this gospel and indeed anywhere in any of the gospels. It is being picarded before our eyes as an absolute picture of faith as he says to the Lord and hits his knees, My Lord and my God. This is a huge moment in the entirety of the Gospels when Thomas responds in this way. He starts with the words, Lord, my Lord. This is the word for sovereign and master and king. He understands in this moment, you are my king. I no longer want to live for myself and do what I want to do. I bow my knee and I take you as my master and my rabbi and my king. And you are my God. This is where the Jehovah's Witnesses start panicking. I like the idea; he's a teacher. Yeah, we're comfortable with that. I mean, he's he can be kind of like a God, maybe prophet. Yeah, I'm far more comfortable with this. Thomas says, "No way. He's God. You are my Lord, my King, and you are my God." For you are the one who always existed as Father, Son and Holy Spirit. You are the Son. You are my God. Nowhere in this gospel prior to this moment has anybody ever called Jesus God. But Thomas in this moment realises you are him. You are my Lord. You are my God. And that wonderful use of that personal pronoun my on both occasions personalises both these things to Thomas. You are my Lord, my King, and you are my God. You are the one who came after me on the greatest rescue mission ever told. And My friends, if we're paying attention, I want to encourage you. This is the very picture of faith that John has been wanting us to see all along. Because what John is now painting before our eyes is what a true picture of saving faith really is. See, in John 3.16, just a few chapters before, Jesus says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. It's wonderful. How do you get saved? Well, you believe. True. But what does that believe actually look like? You see, you meet all too many people that say, oh, I believe, I mentally believe, and they go on living their life completely differently. Jesus would look back at that individual and say, listen, even the demons believe like that. They believe that I am the son of God. They don't so want to follow me. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. What does that belief look like? It looks like Thomas. It looks like a man who hits his knees and says, You are my Lord, my King, my Sovereign and my Master. I give my life to following you and I take you as my God. That is a picture of true saving faith. The Apostle Paul picks up on it in Romans 10, verse 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. What is that? Well, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is your King, you confess it because you believe it. You want to live your life to follow him and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Why? Well, proving that he was indeed God himself the incarnate one that he always claimed to be. If you believe that, then you will be saved. What does that look like? It looks like a Thomas who hits his knees and declares to Jesus Christ, Oh Lord, you are my Lord and my God. Do you see? Before John pulls it all together and says, all these things are written so that you may believe and have life in his name, he wants to placard before your eyes what that belief looks like. It looks like a man who hits his knees and says, you are my Lord and my God. It looks like a man who runs with all his might off a ledge trying to grab that trapeze. Not a man that just stands on the edge and thinks, yeah, I believe, I believe, yeah, I believe, I'm going to get on. Now that isn't faith at all. That's just speculation. Faith comes when you jump off the ledge and go, I believe, I believe you will hold me. I'm coming. That's a true picture of saving faith. It's so important that we understand that. And with that ringing in our ears, there's one more character that John wants us to see. And that is people and generations to come. Namely, us. Us. At verse 29, Jesus said to him, I mean Thomas, have you believed because you have seen me? The answer to that, of course, is yes. <laughs> yeah, I didn't believe before I saw you, but now I see you, I do. I mean, I put my hands on your hands and I touched your side and say, yeah, I believe because I saw. And Jesus says this. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. That is one of my favorite verses in the entirety of the Bible. Because in that moment, I submit to you, it's when our faces and generations to come start to come into the story. Martin Luther once said, the Bible is alive, it speaks to me. It has feet, it runs after me, it has hands. it lays hold of me. We read the Bible but without doubt. The Bible reads us, it comes after us, it pursues us all the time. And this is one of those moments in scripture where you can feel it in a tangible way. Jesus is looking at Thomas in this moment. But after asking him, have you, have you believed because you've seen and the answer is yes. In effect, he's looking past Thomas to future generations. Future people, people like me, people like you, who will never actually see Jesus Christ in our earthly flesh, but who will hear about him from this word and will believe just like Thomas did and as a result get saved just like Thomas was. It's a staggering moment. It's a moment when the Bible goes from 2D to 3D. It's a moment when the Bible goes from black and white to Color, because what we are looking at in verse 29b is us. So my friends, if you're here today and you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I want to encourage you, the Bible still speaks today. It's still alive. It still has hands. It still has a voice. It still has feet. It's still coming after you today. And the message that it has for you right? Here is a call to faith, a call to belief, a call to take the leap of faith for yourself. See, maybe you're here today and you've been thinking, "You oh, know, if only I could see him, then I'd believe. And Jesus looks back at you in his word and says, you know what? You don't need to see me to believe. You simply have to hear about me and then respond. And believe, proclaiming to be me to be your Lord and your God, and you will be saved. You know, for me, I was twenty years old when I did that. I did it several other times when I was a kid. Took him into my heart. Not quite sure what that means. Doesn't talk about it in the Bible, but that's the way I was taught. I took him into my heart. It's lovely. But I was actually twenty years old when I declared him to be my Lord and my God. See, at 19, I went well, 18. I went to university in Cardiff, so I moved from England to Wales to study civil engineering. And after a year and a half, I was doing fine at university. But I met a girl, and after six weeks, I thought this is the person I want to marry. So I left university and got a job. I was earning seven and a half thousand pounds a year, not a lot. Bought a house together, bought a car together. Thought it was sweet. I thought my life was like Hollywood. Met a person, got married. Didn't ask anybody, parents or anything like that. No, we don't bother doing anything like that. Who needs that? I know, I, I, I know all things. I'm a fan of all knowledge. I'm 19. And then six weeks before we were due to get married, she called the whole thing off. She decided she didn't want to get married at all. She liked me, but didn't love me. Didn't want to spend the rest of her life with me. And my life came crashing down. See, prior to that moment, I was, as John Bunyan calls it, Mr. Facing Both Ways. In the church on the weekends, definitely in the world the other days. I couldn't really decide what I wanted to do. Kind of like both. I believed in God. Was he my king? Nope. But I believe he's there. I just want to do my thing. Because I thought this would be fruitful. I thought this would be good. I thought this is where the real action was. And maybe when I'm old and grey, I'll really put my faith in him and then I can get to heaven and it will all be sweet. That was the way I lived my life. I played my life like you play golf. It's just all over the place, edging your bets. And yet at 20 years old, my life came literally crashing down. I now had a house debt I couldn't afford, a car debt I couldn't afford, a terrible job. I've left university. I ain't going back. My life was a mess. And I remember one evening, just as I sat in my bedroom, just crying, not knowing what to do with my life. Remembering verses like this one. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And I'll never forget the night when as I led back on my radiator against the wall, it was winter, it was cold. Just seeing my name in that verse. For God so loved me Me, even though my life is a wreck, even though I've rejected him time and time again, even though I've paid very little interest in him. He so loved me that he gave his son for me. And I never forget the night, although I couldn't remember the day or the time, when I in effect just said, Lord, I take you to be my Lord and my God. I took that leap of faith. And quite honestly, 25 years on, I've never looked back. It was amazing. And it's continued to be amazing. When you take Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior, you realize all the lies, the stupid lies that you're believing for the devil of how much you're gonna to have to give up. It's gonna be so difficult. Are just lies. And you take the leap of faith and you realize how he carries you, and you're like, this is amazing. He forgave me of my sin. He adopted me into his family. He actually watches over my life, my coming and going, both now and forevermore. Heaven is my home. He blesses me in ways that I couldn't ask or imagined again and again and again. To be a child of the king was the best thing that ever happened in my life, ever and ever will be. And it changed my life. For blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed true, blessed. My friends, if you're here today and you've never taken the leap of faith, today looks like a good day to do that. Take the leap. Get on your knees at some point today and say, Lord, I take you as my Lord and my God. I take you as my king. I want to live for you. Help me to do that. And Lord, as I take you as my God, the one who died in my place. Merry Christmas. That's why he came. Put your faith in him as your Lord and Savior, and you will know this life that he brings. And my friends, if you're here today and you are a believer, make no mistake, this Bible still speaks to you today. And what we have here, I think, for you is a call and an opportunity to remember. See, brothers and sisters, in all honesty, your doubt was even greater than Thomas's ever was. Once upon a time, you so doubted the Lord that in fact you rejected him. You were uninterested in, in him. You weren't following him. You had no passion for him as a creator. You were quite happy just living like just yours for yourself, as was I. And the futility of your own mind, alienated from God, doing evil things, we all once did that. We weren't just doubting Jesus, we completely rejected him. What a joke! And yet it was that as an incredible and dark backdrop that caused him to come into the world and then be incredibly and miraculously born through the birth canal of a Virgin Mary on the greatest rescue mission ever told. Why? For you. Don't let Christmas just be this global phenomena. Be aware it is the moment when God came after you, specifically. Meditate on that. Think about that. Don't let Christmas just go by at a rate of knots and give out the presents and eat the turkey and make a boxing day. We've got to get ready for New Year's Eve. We've got to get all the presents. Okay, great. But just stop a minute. Christmas is about one thing. The coming of the king. And he came for you. Don't forget that. And delight in what you see. Let's pray. Lord, Those sins they are many, your mercy is more. Lord, I thank you that you did come after us in an incredible way. You are the one who spins the galaxies. You are the one who breathed out the stars. You dwell in unapproachable light. And yet you took on flesh for us. The one who made the sand would grow up to understand what it's like to rub it off his feet. The one who breathes out the sun and holds it in its place would be the one who would walk the earth and wipe the sweat off his brow. The one who designed our bodies to feel. would then feel nails being driven through his hands. Lord, how can we thank you enough? Lord, help us as we navigate Christmas. Not to get so overwhelmingly focused on all the activities, not to get so overwhelmingly focused on COVID and lockdown and anything else. Help us to be obsessed with one thing you. Amazing you. And as we behold you, would, be ama- would we be amazed in what we see? In Jesus' name, Amen.